I'm going to tell you something you already know, and that is that God's plan is always perfect, but it doesn't always seem that way when we're in the middle of it. Uh, We're in Galatians 3, verse 19. That's where we're starting tonight. We're going to go through chapter 4, verse 7, so Galatians 3, 19. I think back, and probably you can do the same if you've been following Christ for a while. You can probably look back and see moments when you prayed urgently, fervently, diligently for something that God didn't give you. And now you look back on it and you think, okay, God knew what he was doing. I'm glad he didn't give me what I asked for. I'm glad he didn't do what I wanted him to because he had a better plan. I think about myself and uh, you know the first serious relationship, dating relationship I ever really had was right at first semester of college. Sweet girl, but uh, toward the end of that first semester, I could tell she was about to dump me. And I, boy, that terrified me. I did not want that to happen. Prayed and prayed against it. And I'm so glad, so glad that God did not answer my prayer um, because I, you know, I hadn't even met Carrie yet. And there's no way uh, that would have, what I had before would have been as good. I, I think about a couple of different situations where I prayed hard for jobs that I thought I was going to get. One of them was before I went into the ministry and it was, I thought, the perfect job. And if I would have gotten that, maybe I wouldn't have heard God's call to ministry. Another one was years ago before I came here in a church that I was just convinced, well, that's the perfect place for me to be the pastor. And uh, I mean, who, could, who, would, who would turn me down, right? But uh, they did. And I'm really glad because if I'd gone to that church, I might not have come to this church. God always knows what he's doing. I, I like the way Keller says it. God always answers every prayer the way we would pray if we knew what he knows. And we can trust in that. Now, Paul in Galatians has convinced us so far that the law of Moses can't save us. He's he's writing to people who have recently been converted to the opposite viewpoint. Oh no, we're not really saved because we haven't obeyed the law of Moses. We haven't been circumcised. We haven't begun to eat kosher. We haven't begun to follow all those restrictions. And now Paul comes back and says, there's no need for that because that does not save. But the next question, I love how Paul anticipates the arguments of his opponents. The next question is, well, does that then mean that the law of God had no purpose? The whole Law of Moses. Think about when you read the Old Testament, how long the law of Moses is and all those stipulations and all those sacrifices and all those offerings and all those holidays and fasts and feasts. Does that mean all of that was meaningless? Think what that would mean to all the Jews who had devoted their lives to studying that law. I mean, even to this day, Orthodox Jews, uh, they will go to... Israel to just sit and study the Talmud. And that's their dream, to just sit and study the Talmud, which is the the writings of the rabbis about the law of Moses and and breaking it all down to the specifics of what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? What does it mean to to follow this law in modern times, etc.? What would it mean to them to find out all of that was meaningless? Beyond that, and this is where it really hits us, that means that the things that God was up to in the Old Testament were worthless. God was almost, either he made a mistake and the gospel is plan B. Well, I tried, but it didn't work, so I better try something else. Or he was intentionally deceptive, throwing something out that he knew was no good and then saying, aha, so 
what then is the purpose of the law if the law can't save? That's what Paul turns to now. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So Paul, Paul says the purpose of the law and God's salvation plan was to show us our sinfulness, to show us our need for a savior. God puts a standard in front of us and says, do you want to know what it means to live a life that is acceptable to me? This is what it looks like. Knowing that we couldn't do it and knowing that we would need a savior and yet he knew the heart, the heart of human beings, we're not going to receive salvation. We're not going to receive grace until we know we need it. You have to cry out for it. You have to repent of your sins and you can't become aware of your sins until you know the standards. If there was no standard, you know how we are. We tend to justify ourselves. And we would look and say, well, you know, I, I know I lost my temper yesterday, but it's really that other person's fault. She provoked me. Yeah, I know I, I stole this, but well, I wouldn't have stolen if things were more just in our society and I had the kind of money that I needed to buy the things that I require. We can always justify our actions, no matter how reprehensible they seem. So God gives us this law and says, no, if you want to be saved, if you want to join the kingdom, if you want to be a child of God and, and, and overcome this terrible world, here's what you have to do so that we could see, no, we're not as good as we think we are. Paul writes about this elsewhere. In Romans 3.20, he says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We wouldn't even know that we were sinning if God hadn't given us the law. Romans 5.20 says it a different way. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. doesn't mean that the law makes us sin more. It makes us aware of our sin. And the good news is, as Paul says in the second half of that verse, you can't out his grace. Isn't that the good news? So when he says that, that line about it came through an intermediary, well, that's talking about Moses. So God gave the law through Moses to the people. And when there's an intermediary, that implies two-way. That implies there's God's part and there's our part. And that was true. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see over and over again, Israel kept falling short. And there were consequences to that. God never totally wrote them off. But he let them experience the consequences of their disobedience. It was two-way. When he says an inter intermediary implies more than one, but God is one, what he's saying is now through grace, it doesn't matter what we do because his grace is enough. That's the new covenant. The new covenant isn't two ways. The new covenant is unilateral because all that matters is that God has, has, has opened the door by his grace to salvation for us. It only takes the free gift of God. So verse 21 says, is the law then contrary to the purposes, to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could have given, that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. It's another way of saying, if it were possible to create a law that would enable you to be saved, God would have given it to us. Instead, he gave us a law that 
the only way we could be saved was to fulfill this law, knowing there was no way we could ever fulfill it. He says in verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Think about it this way. There, there are lots of good things about the law of God, the commands of God in scripture. Without the law, we'd be like animals. You know, I, I hate to say this to you. I, hate, I know some of you uh, are like my wife and my daughter and you see your cat or your dog as like a person and you, you, you project onto them human emotions. Now, I believe your cat or dog truly loves you, but you realize that when they disobey and you fuss at them, now a cat shows no remorse whatsoever. None, none. A dog at least looks like it's sorry. But as soon as you turn your back, it does the same thing again. Dogs do not, dogs and cats do not experience remorse or repentance. That's not, that's not how they're wired. The only thing a dog is, is, oh, I sure don't like the fact that you're mad at me. I hope that passes soon. And we would be like that. Without the law, we would do whatever we could get away with all the time. You may say, oh, no, I wouldn't be that way. I'm too good a person. No. Even though we're made in the image of God and we have that heart inside of us that yearns for something more, deep down inside we have that sin nature. And when you see your neighbor getting ahead of you, when you see your neighbor who's getting rich because they're able to work the system without a law to restrain you, you would say, okay, I've got to get mine. Without the law to restrain you, you would get revenge on those who hurt you or offend you. You would, you would be out for yourself. You and I would be like animals. But the law at least shows us that there's a reason for godly sorrow. There's a reason to sit back and say, I have done evil things. I have hurt people. I have disgraced the Lord. I have, I have brought shame to my family and to myself. And that godly sorrow leads to repentance. It's a difference between godly sorrow and shame. Shame is not of God, but godly sorrow is. And that sorrow comes from the law. Then he says in verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So there's two different metaphors. The first one, Here's what this is reminding me of. I grew up watching old westerns with my dad. So in almost every old western, including the TV shows like Gunsmoke, Rawhide, whatever, in the town jail, there's always a drunk, right? Have you ever noticed this? There's always a drunk who's drying out and the, the sheriff, you know, is like, okay, you know, Gabby or whatever, it's, I'll let you out. And, and that's what the law does for us. What, why is he in that cell? Well, you put him in there so he doesn't get into worse trouble. He's drunk, he might shoot somebody, he might get run over by a stagecoach, he might, who knows. The law protects us until we can be redeemed. That's, what, that's another purpose of the law. The law protected us, helped us stay out of trouble by giving us the boundaries. Even though we couldn't fully follow them, it kept us out of trouble and prepared us for the coming salvation. Now, the second metaphor in verse 24, he says, the law was our guardian until Christ came. This is interesting because this is not something you and I are familiar with. This doesn't come from Westerns or from Western civilization at all. Back in the Roman world of the ancient world, if you were from a Roman family that had money, then by the time your kids got past the toddler stage, 
you assigned them a slave who would be their guardian. Now, the, the Greek word was pedagogue. Some of you who are teachers, you know pedagogy is the, the craft of teaching. So a pedagogue would be a slave who was assigned to this specific child. Now, while you were under that guardian, that pedagogue, that person told you what to do. They took you to school. They corrected you when you misbehaved. Uh, they made you eat. They made you wear the right clothes. They, they told you what to do. Even though they're a slave and you're a son, you're still under their authority. Do you see where Paul's going with this? You're a child of God, and that makes you a, a son or daughter of the king, but you're under the authority of the law because you don't know any better because you're a child. And that's the purpose of the law. It was our guardian until Christ came, and then Christ makes us free. Now, verse 25. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many, by the way, let me stop there. I said this before Christmas when we talked about uh, adoption, and we're going to read that passage in just a moment, but... Why does it say you're all sons of God? Is this one more example of an ancient writer who didn't care about women and only cared about men, and so he's just talking to the men? And the, No, that's not the case. We're about to find that out in verse 28. He cares very much about women and considers them equal in every way before the Lord. He says you're all sons of God because in the ancient world, only sons had full rights. If you were a daughter, then you were sort of seen as a yoke around your father's neck. And so he had to raise money to marry you off. Whereas the son, he bore your name. He was, you were excited if you had sons. In the, in, the, in the Roman world, sometimes girls would just be left out to die. I mean, you, you baby would be born. Oh, it's a daughter. Well, just leave it on the side of the road and either somebody will pick it up or you know, nature will take its course. That's how little daughters were esteemed. Paul is saying in God's family, everybody's treated like a son. He's not erasing gender distinctions. He's just saying there are no second-class citizens. You are all treated as sons of God through faith, and that's good news. In uh, verse 26, or verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, he mentions baptism here. I need to make this point. I don't think any of you have a problem with this or, or, or think incorrectly about this, but I need to point this out because there are some Christians in the Church of Christ particularly that believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. And of course, Baptists and others come back with, well, what about the thief on the cross? He never got baptized, and yet Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. I always say that baptism is like the wedding ring I wear on my, on my ring finger on my left hand. The wedding ring does not make me married. If I dropped it and somebody else came along and stuck it on their finger, they wouldn't then be married. But the wedding ring is a sign to others that I am married. If I said, I don't want to wear the ring, my wife would be justified in saying, why not? Right? And so baptism is a sign that shows that we are saved. And we should want to be baptized. We should want to shout that from the rooftops. We should want to do that. But it does not in itself save us. And as I always tell people, if you accept Christ as your Savior, and for whatever reason never get baptized, you're still saved. 
So it's not about that. Now, how do we know this? I mean, Paul, this is the only place in this whole discussion that Paul mentions baptism, whereas he mentions faith over and over again. Salvation is by grace through faith, not through baptism. And also, think about this. Paul is writing this whole treatise to discourage the idea that an outward sign, circumcision, is necessary for salvation. So logically speaking, He's not going to replace one outward sign with another. He's not going to say, oh, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved, but you do need to be baptized. So that's not the argument he's making. He's mentioning baptism because as we talked about Sunday, that's what we have in common. We're baptized in the same name. We're baptized in the faith of Jesus Christ. And that's what we share as brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 28. Verse 28 is one of those monumental verses. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this is not the only place that this this principle is laid out in the New Testament, but it's probably the most memorable because it's summed up in one verse. I mean, the whole New Testament uh, uh, endorses these same points, but right here in a verse that I think we all can remember by memory, we can all say it by memory, we essentially see the the treasured ideals of Western civilization. We're proud as Americans that we live in a country where everyone has rights, everyone has equality, and every person is seen as important. And we tend to forget that wasn't always the case in humanity. And for most of human history, that's not the way people were treated. Paul is, is making an argument that changed the whole world. The things that we take for granted as being, ah, this is what it means to be a civilized people. Well, that came from Christianity. It didn't come from our birth as human beings. It didn't come from our humanity. It came from the Christian faith. In the ancient world, ethnic distinctions like Jew and Gentile, you'd fight wars over that stuff. But in Christ... We understand that all people matter, no matter what kind of blood you have coursing through your veins or what color your skin is or, or what language you speak. In that world, there were rigid social distinctions, you know, slave or free. Think about Hinduism with the caste system. You're born into a specific caste and you can't get out of it. You can't marry out of it. You can't, you can't rise above it. And yet Jesus comes along and says, whether you're a slave or you're free, you're one in Christ. I, I love the part in... in uh, I think it's Ephesians or Col- it's either Ephesians or Colossians, uh, where Paul says to the slave masters, "Listen, you have a master in heaven too, so you better you better treat your slaves correctly because you have a master that you're going to have to answer to someday for how you treated them." And, and and think about gender distinctions. Paul is not eliminating gender distinctions; they still matter. They're still gender, and men and women have their different purposes and roles and abilities. But think about this for a moment. One of the great myths that you often hear is that Paul especially, but the Christian faith overall is anti-women. Boy, ladies, if you want to be liberated, if you want to be your full human self, then walk away from organized religion and especially Christianity. Well, think about it for a moment. Think about the nations on earth today where women are the most free where women are, have the most rights, have the best quality of life. Think about those nations. Now, what do they all have in common? They all have a Christian heritage. That didn't happen naturally. That happened because the gospel took over. Now, are there still bad things that happen to women in those countries? Yes. Are there still Christian men who are 
pigs and, you know, mistreat women. Absolutely, because we're sinners. But it's not because of the gospel. In the gospel, we all have equal worth before the Lord. So that one verse changed the world. Now, verse 29, he says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And this is a verse that, again, like so much of Paul's writing, before Paul met Jesus, he would have wanted to kill anyone who said verse 29. The idea that you can be a, a son or daughter of Abraham by any other means than converting to Judaism. He would, have, he would have fought that person to the death. But now he says, all you need is Christ. And you're a son or daughter of Abraham. You're as much a part of the family of God as I am with all my Hebrew blood. There are no second class citizens in the family of God. Gentiles are equal to Jews within that family. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. It's an interesting way to look at it, right? So let's say, you picture a, a wealthy child, a child of wealthy parents. That child is going to inherit lots of money someday, but right now he still has to do everything his mom and dad say. In a way, he's like a slave. He doesn't get to call the shots. And, and that's the point Paul is making too. When you're a child, you're like a slave. You're under the control of someone else. But this time, Paul is not talking about life under a pedagogue. Although he's going to mention this, verse 2, he says, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now that term, elementary principles, that's what it says in the, in the ESV that I'm reading out of. Your, your translation may say something different. But it sounds kind of innocent, doesn't it? It sounds elementary principles. Elementary, dear Watson, right? But that's a term that's used for demonic forces. The basic things of this world, the things that are in control of humanity before Christ shows up. Now here's where we get into controversial stuff. Unbelievers find this incredibly offensive, and you probably did too before you came to Christ. The idea that without Jesus, you are under the thumb of Satan, boy, you would deny that if you were not a believer in Jesus. You'd say, I'm not under anybody's control. I do what I want. And Paul says, no, no, you were a slave. You didn't know it, but you were a slave. He was able to control you. He was, it's not, it doesn't mean you never did anything right, never did anything good, but overall, he was able to keep you from experiencing fulfillment. We couldn't fulfill the law, even if we wanted to. So evil had its way in our lives. We were slaves, slaves to evil, slaves to sin. And that's a bad place to be. Verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That, again, is so beautiful. Such, such a beautiful truth. And I've preached on that passage many times, including right before Christmas. But for our purposes today, in the, in, the, in the scope of that whole argument that we started back in the middle of chapter three, we started by saying, well, does the law have any purpose if the law can't save? And so for those who've heard Paul's argument and said, okay, so the law 
God gave it to us to prepare us for salvation. Well, why did he take 1,500 years? He gave us the law and Moses 1,500 years passed before Jesus shows up. Well, why did God leave us that long? Paul doesn't know. We don't know. All he knows is it was in the fullness of time. It was exactly the right time. It was God's time. God knew what he was doing. One thing to point out, and, and I'm not the one who made this up or figured this out, but Jesus came at exactly the point when the Roman Empire had created a system of roads that stretched through multiple countries. That had never existed before. Most of the Western world spoke one language, Greek. That hadn't existed before. And so, in a sense, it was the right time because that's when the gospel could spread. That may be one reason why God waited for that exact moment, but we don't need to know all the reasons. All we need to know is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, it was exactly the right time. And there are a couple of, in, uh, of images of salvation that Paul uses here. First, he says, we were redeemed from slavery. We were purchased. You could free someone from slavery. A slave could even free themselves if they could earn the money to buy their own freedom. But Jesus bought our freedom through his death. And then there's that, that other metaphor, the, the image of adoption. We've got some families in our church that have adopted children, and it's such a beautiful thing. I, Nathan, our uh, associate worship minister, does our 1115 service and does so much else. You know, he and his wife, Catherine, adopted their little girl, Essie, uh, three or four years ago. And the whole, on the day the, the adoption became official, the whole staff of the church went over to the courthouse and we were there to witness it. And it was just a beautiful time. They took a picture of us all standing there. And the judge was like, are you, are you all relatives? Well, you know, in the, in the Lord we are. It was just beautiful. And it's just such a, an exciting thing. She was seven years old at the time. And came in, you know, came from the streets, essentially. Her mom was homeless and, and had a lot of issues and, and could not raise her. And then comes into this beautiful family. Now she's got a little baby sister and a little baby brother and she's got four grandparents that dote on her and, and all these advantages and, and a church that loves her and that's such a picture of what's happened to us because we were we were lost we were fending for ourselves and doing a lousy job of it and then the king comes along and says no, I'm not just going to pardon you I'm going to adopt you I'm going to bring you in and make you mine and I'm going to teach you to live as a son or daughter of the king and that's not going to be an, an overnight process, but I'm going to be patient because that's, what I, that's how much I love you. And that, that phrase, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And the word Abba is, of course, the Hebrew word for dad. Dada is another way of saying it. Papa. Uh, probably the first word most little Jewish boys and girls learn because it's easy to say. Side note, I know I've said this before, but isn't it an injustice that most babies say daddy before they say mom? I don't know why. I said that once and a mom that was sitting in the Bible study said that's because the mom teaches them. They say, say dada, say dada. I don't know. That sounds, sounds like my mom, sounds like my wife, but I don't know. Jesus taught us to say that and that had never been done before. The Jews believed that God was the father of Israel. But no Jew before Jesus would have prayed, our Father who art in heaven. No, no Jew would have said, God is my Father. That's something Jesus brought to us. And every time in the scriptures that Jesus prays, you hear him say, 
father, except for one. The one time he didn't was when he was on the cross and he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, the reason why he said that is a whole nother, ex whole nother explanation, but just think about that. He taught us that he's our father. Think about it. The son came, Jesus came, to give us the position as children of God. But the spirit came to give us the experience of children of God. Jesus died, so we became positionally adopted, but the Spirit helps us experience that and feel it. And that, that Spirit in our hearts cries, Abba, Father. We feel that we're adopted into the family. I uh, quote Tim Keller again. He says, no one wakes a king up in the middle of the night for a glass of water except his child. And that's the privilege that you and I have. We can wake up the king in the middle of the night for a glass of water, and he doesn't say, go back to bed. Jesus is the one who taught us that, but the Spirit is the one who made it real in our hearts, who enables us to feel it. So, the next time, and it will happen, the next time you can't figure out what God is up to, the next time you pray and pray and pray, and you don't understand why what you're praying for doesn't happen the way you prayed for it, because there's absolutely nothing wrong with what you asked for. Or because you just assumed it was going to go that way. All the trends seem to be pointing in that direction. I, I, I'm the most qualified person for that job. I, I, I know that she loves me. Why wouldn't she accept my proposal? Why would the next time things don't go the way you want them to go? Why wouldn't God heal me? Why wouldn't God do this? Why wouldn't God do what I ask? Remember, he never makes mistakes. He never makes a mistake. I'll, I'll just close with this. Um, years ago, uh, some of y'all know Ken Burns. Did you ever see the, the Civil War documentary on PBS? Ken Burns, very, very good if you like history at all. Well, then a couple of years later, he made one about baseball. Even if you don't like sports, I highly recommend it. So... One of the people that became famous because of that documentary was a man named Buck O'Neill. Buck O'Neill was a baseball player in the Negro Leagues, so he played before baseball was integrated. And in all the episodes of that documentary, he's featured and he's talking about baseball, and he's just, he was just such an infectious person, just joyful and, and articulate. Um, but he, by the time they integrated baseball, he was already in his 40s. Great player, but he was too old to come into the major leagues. And someone asked him, do you wish that you would have been born a little later so you could have played Major League Baseball? And his answer was, nope, I was right on time. Now, I don't know if Buck O'Neill was a Christian. I hope he was. I, I think he probably was. But he gave a Christian answer. Because what he was saying was, God doesn't make a mistake. If God would have wanted me to be born in such a time that I could have played Major League Baseball, he would have. But because he didn't, that meant he had a better plan. And I'm going to rejoice in that plan. And that's, that's the faith that we need to yearn for and, and seek, is the ability to say, I don't understand what God's doing. I just know he never makes a mistake. He knew exactly what he was doing when he, when he created the plan of salvation and every little detail of my life, he knows what he's doing. I can trust him. He's always on time. So if you don't feel that way, pray that God would help you experience that and feel that kind of faith. Let's pray. Almighty God, we're so grateful that you are a God who's worthy of our faith and our trust. And I pray, Lord, for anybody here tonight who is struggling with that. Doesn't make them a bad person. Help them to see that. 
you have patience with us when we struggle and when we doubt, when we question, but I pray that we would move beyond that and would learn to trust you and would learn even to rejoice when our plans and your plans don't coincide. Lord, we pray and we thank you in advance that we know you're always going to do what's right. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.